welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 129, Sutton Who, Treasures of the Dead. Before we begin, I have some great news. The BHP now has an app that you can use on your iOS devices. With this app, you're going to be able to access the podcast, the members-only episodes, the Facebook community, the Twitter community, and the BHP forums, all from within a single app on your iPhone or iPad. And best of all, it's free, thanks to the generosity of legendary member Alan Perry of Snow Moose Software. So please, head on over to the App Store and search for British History Podcast and download the app. And if you like it, please give us a rating. All right, so last episode, we learned all about Edith and Basil's experience at Sutton Hoo. And we covered the opening of four of the 18 mounds and the excavation of the burial chamber of Mound 1. But we haven't discussed what was actually found or what it means. So guess what we're going to talk about today? Yep, you guessed it. We're going to be discussing the importance and story behind many of the objects that were found in Mound 1 of Sutton Hoo. The helmet, the sword, the lot of it. And I'm sure that I'm going to say this several times today, but if you're anywhere near the British Museum, or intend to go there in the future, I hope you take the Sutton Hoo episodes with you and spend some time in the British Museum's exhibit. You really need to see these objects in person to fully appreciate their beauty. And I hope that the context that these episodes provide will make your trip a lot more meaningful. Alright, so, the burial chamber. Why don't we try and put this into context as best as we can? It's all too easy to look at a burial, even a magnificent burial, and see it in isolation. This is a grave. And it's a grave for this individual person. And that's as far as we might look. But really, there's a great deal more going on here. The reality is that the dead don't bury themselves. So even on the surface level, when we look at a grave, we're seeing elements of how individuals involved in the burial, often in the deceased's community, process the experience of death. But we're also seeing how they related to the individual who had died. Different individuals receive different burials. And the status of the relationship between the deceased and the people responsible for burying them can result in widely different styles of burials. Consider the difference between a mass grave following some sort of massacre and a burial for some sort of general. The same group of people could carry out both burials, but the grave sites would look radically different. And that's generally determined by the relationship that the deceased had with the community that was involved in burying him or her. And that relationship can change over time. For example, Oliver Cromwell received a funeral at Westminster Abbey with all the pomp and circumstance you might expect, only to be later dug up, hung, beheaded, and chucked into a pit. And while the attention paid to Cromwell certainly had to do with his actions in life, the state of his burial, exhumation, posthumous execution, and low-altitude headless base jumping was entirely centered around the feelings of the community. So that's one level that we should be looking at when we look at these burials. That this is an expression of the community in relationship to the dead. But there's another aspect as well. Namely, the dead aren't always passive in this circumstance. 
Instructions may have been given out on how a burial was to take place. And history is littered with examples of powerful leaders who started building their monuments while they were still alive. So it's possible that as death approached, there were conversations determining how the funeral was going to take place, or even what was going to be placed in the burial. For example, I can almost imagine a churl saying, No, do not bury me in that tunic. Yeah, I realize it was a gift from your mother, but she's a terrible seamstress, and I'm not going to go and meet Woden wearing a horse blanket. So when we look at something like Mound 1, which is the largest of the mounds, it's tempting to say this must have been the most important of the people buried at Sutton Hoo. But that's not necessarily the case. It might be true, but it's also possible that there were more important people buried there who had more modest requests. So that's something to keep in mind when we look at these burials. The dead might not bury themselves, but they still can have a hand in it. And it's not just instructions being given while the person was still alive. There are plenty of examples in the world of visions and dreams guiding mourners in the process of a burial. Now it's up to you whether you believe in those circumstances if the dead were actually communicating. But the important thing for us is that the people receiving the instructions thought that they were communicating with the dead. You can see how in a circumstance like that, a burial can become a sort of communication and collaboration between the dead and the community that was left behind. The funeral and the burial serve as a way for the community to remember the deceased and process the death. Like we spoke about last episode, we have been seeing cremation burials in some of these mounds. Now, in our modern era, cremation is often rather sanitary, isolated, and oddly industrial. You say goodbye to your loved one, and later you go and pick up their ashes. If you refuse to pay the extortion-level fees for an urn, you can end up with, and I'm not kidding here, your grandfather's ashes in a plastic bag. And then years later, you might end up driving by the funeral home, only to discover that now it's a gastropub in a fairly hip neighborhood of Portland. I wonder if they kept the oven. Anyway, the Anglo-Saxons probably didn't have such a transactional experience with cremation not only because they would have been directly involved in washing and preparing the body beforehand, but also because of the nature of cremation. For us, it feels quick and clean because we're so removed from it these days. But an open-air cremation was anything but the case. It would have been a spectacle, and an unpredictable one at that, because fire interacts with people and objects differently based upon their composition. Not to mention the weather the availability of combustible material, the size and shape of the pyre, whether the burial was alone or whether it was accompanied by something else, like the man with a horse from last episode. With all of these variables, it's inevitable that each cremation was probably unique. But in general, the pyre would have been rather large, and it would have been mind-blowingly hot, as much as 1,200 degrees centigrade. And it also would have burned for about 10 hours. For 10 hours, any who were present would have been inundated with the sounds, smells, heat, and sights of the cremation. There would have been no escaping it. Even if the body was initially placed in a coffin, that covering would have burned away, revealing the corpse soon after the fires were lit. And then the clothing, the hair, and the skin would have been consumed. Then the fat and organs would have ignited. And fat being combustible would have only heightened the blaze. 
The heat from the pyre would have probably caused steam to erupt from the body, and it might have caused muscles and tendons to tighten, which might have given the impression that the body was animated for a time. Actually, there are even reports of sounds similar to moaning that come as a result of heat causing the gases in the chest to rapidly expand. And I wonder, in such circumstances, what the Anglo-Saxons might have thought. If they thought that the spirit was being released through the flames, for example. Or maybe they thought that the dead was taking part in the funerary rites. But regardless, eventually, throughout this process, everything would have been revealed to any mourners present, layer by layer until the bones, many of which would have been fragmented by the heat, were all that remained. The person they lost was now truly gone, consumed, and those present would have had an indelible memory of the event. It would have been an all-out assault on their senses, and based upon the tone of Beowulf, it's been argued that being present for the cremation might have served as part of the mourning process and a way to let go. And simply because the fires had died down and the body had been consumed did not mean the funeral was over. Now there were bones and ashes to be attended to. Based upon the digs that have been uncovered, it seems like the care of the bones was an important part of the funerary ritual, rather than some sort of afterthought or side effect of the cremation. The bones of the dead would have been mixed in with the ashes and the charcoal, and once the site was cool, they could have easily been collected by hand, directly. Or the Anglo-Saxons might have washed the area down and raked it to reveal the bones more easily. From the remains in many Anglo-Saxon cremation graves, there looks to have been a fair amount of attention to only collect the remains of the body, and not parts of the fire. So it looks like a great deal of care was placed in the retrieving of the bones, and only the bones. And consider who might have been collecting those bones. This could well have been the mourners themselves, family members, members of the community. Having witnessed the transformation of the body, they were now in direct contact with the fire-bleached bones, collecting them for burial. And interestingly, the bones don't appear to have been broken up deliberately to fit into a container like some other cultures have done. Everything we see in these cremation burials echoes a great deal of respect and care by the individuals who were undertaking the task. And once everything was collected, they set about burying the remains. Selecting objects, creating a burial site, and, as is the case with some of these mounds, undertaking a tremendous amount of labor-intensive work. And once it was complete, it could well have served as a place of continuity and connection with those that they had lost much like graveyards are today, with people visiting the graves of their family members. And don't forget that with the experience of the cremation and the burial, their memory and image of their dead was probably forever altered. They didn't have photographs or video to look back on. And the last interaction they had was probably with that great inferno, or perhaps interring the bones into a grave. With that in mind, the mounds such as Sutton Hoo make all the sense in the world, and I can absolutely imagine the sort of connection and comfort that they might provide to the members of the community. And they might have helped those left behind reconcile the person they remembered with the transformation to the afterlife that they had just witnessed. So hopefully that will give you a sense of the sort of cultural experience that the Anglo-Saxons might have been dealing with in connection with some of these mound burials at Sutton Hoo. Now, let's talk about what was buried at Mound 1. 
And to start with, let's get a lay of the land so you can put these objects in context rather than just seeing photographs of them, or maybe just seeing them in display cabinets at the British Museum. After this episode, hopefully you'll have a more full understanding of most of these objects. So if you're in London, or if you plan on going there, I'd recommend you listen to the two Sutton Hoo episodes, and then head over to see the objects in person at the British Museum. They do a wonderful job of displaying the finds, and hopefully this episode will give you a good sense of what you're looking at in context. Now this chamber was no minor burial. It lay right in the center of the ship and was about five and a half meters long and about four and a half meters wide, which is essentially the full width of the ship. It isn't clear what the floor looked like, but it probably consisted of planks and it looks like there was some sort of rug or mat that was laid down. Now we don't know how high the burial chamber was. It might have been relatively low with just planks laid across the gunwales, or it might have had a pitched roof. But whatever the shape the roof was, it's clear from the dig that it was solidly built out of timber. It was double planked, and it had a double skinned roof. And also, it lasted quite a while before it finally decayed and collapsed, possibly as long as a hundred years. And we think that because of the condition of the finds within the chamber. And speaking of those finds, the objects inside are a magnificent example of a pagan burial. Everything that the deceased would need in the afterlife was provided. We don't have any indication of how the objects were brought to the ship, nor how the burial was carried out. Unfortunately, ritual doesn't leave any archaeological evidence. But everything inside was almost certainly placed in a ritual fashion. The objects appear to have been arranged very deliberately, rather than just haphazardly tossed in. The domestic objects were probably hanging on the walls on the end, or maybe placed leaning against the walls, while the more personal objects, which were also generally more precious, were placed centrally, essentially right over the keel of the ship. Along the eastern wall, there were some containers, a large U-tub containing a smaller bucket, and a large bronze cauldron that was hung on the wall by one of its handles, with the opening facing the wall. A suspension chain was coiled nearby, as well as a lamp and a small earthenware bottle. Just to the west of that lay the Anastasius dish, which was initially thought to be a shield, but it was just a dish. And the dish was fortunate for us because it acted like a canopy for some of the objects and protected them. Beneath and next to the dish were a variety of objects that seemed rather personal in nature. And to give you a sense of place, all of this was pretty close to the center of the burial chamber. And here's what was found. Leather clothes. Four leather shoes. Folded cloth. Silver and bronze buckles. A drinking horn. Two hanging bowls. A wooden scoop. And a deep silver-fluted bowl which contained objects of its own. And again, the objects found within the silver bowl were also personal in nature. For example, there were walnut wood cups. Three combs made of bone, one that was finely decorated and had some sort of organic substance inlaid into it that hasn't yet been identified. Four iron knives that had horn or bone handles, an otter skin cap, and a wood and iron box. And then underneath all of that was a male shirt and an axe hammer. Just a bit to the west, they found the crushed remains of a couple drinking horns, six maple and silver drinking bottles, and some folded cloth. And then, to the western side, but still fairly central, were further personal objects. 
but these ones were more militaristic in nature. There was a beautiful pattern-welded sword in a scabbard and a spear. Now, there were five other spears, but they were placed against the western wall, so maybe this specific spear was a favored one or something like that. Nearby were the golden garnet remnants of a sword belt, as well as the jeweled remains of a second belt, and a purse containing a bunch of gold coins. There were also clasps right around at shoulder height, and they were probably attached to a leather cuirass that had long since decayed. And nearby, there were the stunning remnants of the Sutton Hoo helmet. Along the western wall appears to have been something of an armory, along with a few esoteric objects. It's there that we see the crushed leather-covered limewood shield, with its impressive bronze decorations. We also see those five spears, all of different styles, as well as three angons, which are barbed throwing spears. And the spears were thrust through the handle of a bronze bowl. But we also see things like a heavy bronze bowl from Egypt, and a maplewood lyre kept in a beaver skin bag. There was also a beautiful Celtic bowl, which was originally hung from an iron nail, but have fallen down over the years. And another iron-bound bucket, as well as a large, we're talking about a meter and a half high, iron stand. It isn't clear what the stand was for, but it must have been for something. It was pretty damn big. And right next to it was a huge whetstone with carved faces and painted decorations. And finally, there was a delicate bronze stag mounted on an iron ring. But have you noticed what was missing from this description? A body, right? No teeth, no bone, nothing. Sure, there were clothes and objects that you'd associate with a body, but where's the body? Also, it's clear from the dig that the clothes that we have found weren't on the body, but rather were carefully folded and placed in the burial. So what happened there? Well, one theory is that the burial never contained a body at all. That it was a cenotaph, basically an empty tomb that's built to honor someone who might have been buried somewhere else. And considering that bodies were found in other mounds, but not in Mound 1, this entire situation does certainly seem a bit strange. Another theory is that there was a body, but it was removed at a later date. Maybe for Christian reburial or something like that. However, there would have been signs of disturbance in the burial chamber in that case. And none were found. Now the third theory is that the soil was acidic, and that there was a body, but the body dissolved over time. Some scholars have pointed to the fact that the soil in Sutton Hoo is pretty acidic all on its own, and the ship burial would have compounded that effect, leading to the breakdown of the body. This is because the ship would have trapped moisture, essentially creating an acid bath. And if the person was very old when buried, or very young, the body would have dissolved much more easily. Support for this is found in the fact that phosphates in the soil are much higher in the burial than in the surrounding area. Now, phosphates are contained in all living things, and as a body decays, those phosphates get released into the surrounding area. And curiously, the increase in phosphates corresponds to the center of the chamber, right where the body might have been placed. Though, because phosphates are in all living things, it isn't definitive proof that the increase was due to a human body. It might have been anything that was once alive. But it is certainly quite suggestive that there was a body there, and it had just dissolved over time. And further studies have found hardened shadows of sand, commonly referred to as sand bodies, in other burials at Sutton Hoo, with corresponding fragments of bone. 
And those shadows in combination with the bone really does make you wonder if there was a body there that had just decayed naturally over time in the acidic soil. So that's the rough outline of the chamber. Now let's talk about those objects and why they're so important. And to start with, let's tackle the items of war, since it's quite possible that this was Raidwald's burial, and we already know about his prowess in battle. Now, with the exception of the sword and that single spear, which were laid alongside his body, and the helmet, which looks like it was right next to his shoulder, all of the weapons and armor were laid to the east and west of where his body was probably laid down. So let's talk about the mail coat and axe hammer, which were to the east of the body. You probably remember from the armor episode how incredibly difficult and time-consuming making a coat of mail was. We're talking about tens of thousands of individual links that had to be created and fastened. This was not an item that the poor could afford. This was something that only the incredibly wealthy would have had access to. And rather than wearing it into the afterlife, it was folded up next to the body under some sort of skin or leather garment, and also a silver bowl. And this wasn't a small male shirt, which would have still been quite expensive. No, this would have been at least thigh length, and possibly longer. Its iron links were uniformly 8mm in diameter and held in place with joints and copper rivets. This thing would have been heavy as hell, but the craftsmanship involved in making it would have announced to the world the wealth and power of its bearer. And it would have also provided protection from swords and spears in battle, while also allowing supple movement. But not only was this body armor exquisite, it was also rare. In fact, we haven't found any other similar male in Europe. The closest comparison are the face and neck guards found in the chieftain's graves in Sweden at around the same time, and possibly the Coppergate helmet out of York, though that was from a later period. This male is a very special find. It's incredibly rare. And along with the male was an axe hammer. And this too is a unique find. It is entirely made out of iron and has a hammer-like extension on the end that kind of makes it look like a tool that a blacksmith might have used. The iron shaft, which is unusually long, had a ring attached to the end of it. Now, was that a ring to make carrying it easier? Or was it a ring similar to sword rings? Who knows? It could have been a two-handed fighting axe, similar to what we've seen in the bio-tapestry, but it also looks rather like axes used by medieval mounted soldiers. But the Anglo-Saxons didn't fight on horseback, and we are hundreds of years from the period where that sort of soldier would appear. So much like the male, this is a fascinating discovery, but it's also a bit confusing. Now on the other side, we see the spear and sword. Now, while there were a total of six spears and three angons in the burial, it looks like this one spear was selected and buried next to the body. Spears are among the most common items to be found in Anglo-Saxon burials, especially from this period. They're the weapons of Woden, after all. But it's very rare to find a burial containing more than two spears. Yet this one had an abundance of them. And they weren't all of the same variety. Rather, they were all different only being able to be roughly categorized as either straight-sided spears or leaf-shaped spears. But they were all unique, which seems to have been keeping with everything else in this burial. And then we have the magnificent sword. It was pattern-welded, 
Again, that's a rather complex process and something that we covered in the weapons episodes, but this is the sort of weapon that only someone of immense status could have afforded. Just the blade itself would have been eye-wateringly expensive. This blade in particular was made from eight bundles of iron rods that were hammered together to form a patterned core with a high carbon steel cutting edge. Half of the bundles were made up of seven iron rods that were twisted together in alternating directions. And they were laid back to back with the other half of the bundles of seven rods that weren't twisted. And this meant that the pattern on the blade would have alternated and looked absolutely stunning. Something like this would have been a hell of a statement of power and prestige. Pattern welded blades were rare, hard to make, and generally were handed down from generation to generation. But here was one being buried. And it's one of the finest pattern blades that have ever been discovered. Whoever it was buried with must have been quite important. Even now, in its corroded state, the sword is a sight to behold. But when it was in its prime, it would have been awe-inspiring. And that was probably at least part of its purpose. But it wasn't just the blade that we found. There was a hilt, a sword belt, and a scabbard. Now as for the hilt, the golden garnet cloisonne pommel was made out of five parts. Two convex side panels, two concave upper panels, and a square bit at the top. And they were placed side to side and nailed to a bronze former with the gaps being filled in with thick beaded gold wire. The upper and lower guards were formed in sheet gold and bound with thick gold rope collars, attaching them to the hand grip. The hand grip itself was wooden with two delicate gold filigree clips. So this thing would have been both sturdy as well as brilliant to see. The scabbard was mounted with gold and garnet cloisonne fittings shaped like bosses or domed buttons. The cloisonne was intricately formed with special care taken to have subtle variations in the shade of the garnets, so that the crosses were lighter in color than the remainder of the garnet. Just think about what the use of multiple shades of garnet meant. The craftsman who created this scabbard must have had a tremendous amount of material on hand in order to do something like this. What an incredible amount of wealth we're talking about here. And these fittings would have been stapled to a bone or ivory band that went around the scabbard, raising them up. They might have been attached to leather straps, which would have provided a support harness so that it could be attached to a sword belt. There were a couple sliders that were also decorated with gold and garnet cloisonne that would have functioned as additional points where straps could have been secured to hold the sword in place on the bearer's belt. After all, carrying a sword wasn't a simple matter of sliding it through a loop on your belt. If you did that, it would be bouncing all over the place, and it would end up being more of a burden than anything else. All of this was carefully designed to hold the sword and scabbard in place, and for good reason. No one wants to see their king trip over his own sword. Now next to all of this, laying in the sand in the burial, were gold and garnet cloisonne pyramids, much like the sword pyramids we chatted about in the Staffordshire Horde episodes. These things are beautiful, and they also incorporate bands of dark blue glass with a blue and white checker pattern on the top of each one, sort of like the mystery bead in the Staffordshire Horde. And as you might recall, it's thought that these pyramids might have formed a part of the fastening system for the sword and sword belt. And speaking of the sword belt, no trace of the belt other than the fitting survived, but the shape and style of the fittings suggest that the sword belt itself was made out of heavy leather and worn at the waist 
and it was kept from swinging around with a strap that went from the waist to the scabbard. The fittings themselves are large, rectangular, intricate, and so similar in style that they probably came out of the same workshop. The style and craftsmanship of these pieces is really something that has to be seen to be believed. The delicacy and precision of it all cannot be overstated. And something to keep in mind is that all of this was handmade, without the assistance of machines or even optics. And yet we see garnets cut in ways that make them appear like twisted rope, and the gold settings have been formed so that they perfectly sit against the stones. And you might want to pause this and have a look at photographs online, or better yet, head over to the British Museum and see them in person. And it isn't just the garnets. On the sides, there are three gold dome rivets that are decorated with gold filigree. And there was also a hinge strap distributor that was decorated in the same style, and it would have been placed on the hips so that the strap could easily attach to it and the slider on the scabbard. And amazingly, when the distributor was pulled out, it still worked. The hinge and design was that well made. The belt alone, even without the sword attached to it, would have been intimidating to see, with the gold and garnet cloisonne covering large sections of it, and it would have been fastened with a matching rectangular buckle. But when I mentioned that we would be talking about Sutton Hoo today, I'm sure that you weren't thinking about the scabbard, or the sword belt, or the spears. You were probably thinking about the Sutton Hoo helm. Now this impressive helmet had as much as a hundred years to corrode before the timbers of the burial chamber collapsed in and crushed it. And that's an important fact, because rather than bending and warping the helmet, as it would have done had it not been corroded, the helmet shattered. This is actually really good for us, because that meant that the helmet could be restored to its original shape, because it was undistorted by the collapse. Now this helmet, in addition to being only one of four in existence from this era in England, is a stunning example of the metalsmith's skill. The cap itself was formed from a single piece of iron, with ear flaps and a deep iron net guard being attached to it. The surface of the iron was covered in tinned bronze foil, which would have made the helmet shine brilliantly like silver. Much of its surface were covered in plates which were held in place by fluted bronze strips. The plates themselves came in four varieties. Two of the styles involved winding snake designs, which we become familiar with in the Staffordshire Horde, and the other half depicted scenes from Scandinavian and Germanic mythology. And actually, one of them features a mounted warrior riding down another warrior, which appears to have roots with Scandinavian and German scenes from the Roman period. Along the center crest of the helm are gilded bronze animal heads with garnet eyes and open mouths full of fierce-looking teeth. Just above the faceplate are two bronze eyebrows with garnet edges along the upper edge, ending with boar's heads on either end. The faceplate itself is oval in shape and features a rather striking nose, which actually was designed to cover the wearer's nose. Don't believe me? The interior of the nose is hollow, so that the nose could fit in there, and there are even nostril holes cut into it, so that the bearer could breathe easier. And only slightly less noticeable than the nose is the big Freddie Mercury mustache that the faceplate features. Like the nose, this was gilded in bronze. And then all across the remainder of the face were tinned bronze foil decorations. Based upon the corrosion that we've seen on the interior of the helmet, it looks like the inside was lined with leather and might have also been padded, 
which definitely would have made it more comfortable to wear. Now, as for what the helmet tells us, well, stylistically, it has a lot in common with the helmets that you see in the parades of the late Roman era. But chances are, the more direct link for the inspiration for its style would be found in Swedish chieftain burials, especially in the upland region. And not just the style of the helmet, but also the ship burials as well. When you look at Mound 1, there's a lot that makes you think of Sweden. However, not everything is Swedish. The use of a solid iron face mask, the ear flaps, the neck guards, none of those appear in that region. Nor does the use of a single piece of iron to make the cap. The Swedes use strips of iron. So like with much of this burial, this helmet is unique. And what about the shield? If you've seen the Sutton Hoo exhibit, you can't help but notice the enormous shield that's on display. Now the shield itself is mostly a reconstruction. All that was left of the shield and the burial were scraps of lime wood and leather, as well as a pile of fittings. But archaeologists have studied these remains and have recreated a shield that's almost a meter in diameter. It's constructed out of lime wood and is covered in leather, and of course, the impressive bronze and iron fittings. The leather itself was probably glued to the board, and it was also held in place by a bronze gilt strip and bronze and garnet dragon-eyed clips that travel the length of the rim. At the center of the shield is a huge iron and bronze boss that's decorated with a variety of garnet-eyed animals and a cloisonné disc. The boss in particular is remarkably Swedish in style, looking much like a high-status Vendel shield. This similarity is so striking that archaeologists have suggested that if the boss wasn't made in Sweden, it almost certainly had been made by a Swedish armorer. And it isn't just the boss that makes this shield interesting. On one side of the boss is a bronze shield mount shaped like a dragon. And I'm sure it doesn't surprise you to hear that dragons sometimes decorate Swedish shields. And on the other side of the boss is a gold and bronze bird of prey, which are common images in both Scandinavia and Northern Europe. Above and below are smaller gilt bronze bosses with tinned collars, with gold foil strips stamped with animal designs that, you guessed it, look a lot like a shield from a Vendel grave in Sweden. Now the strips themselves are usually iron because they're there to reinforce the stability and durability of the shield. But gold is a very soft metal, so it's highly unlikely that this would have been a very functional shield. Rather, due to its fragility, it probably was only ceremonial in nature. Now just below the bottom of the gold foil is a gilt bronze ring. And this is yet another part of this burial that's amazing. As you know from earlier episodes, kings were often the givers of rings. And rings were often given as a mark of a binding relationship or as a mark of valor. And we have seen places on swords where the rings would have been attached. But a ring attachment on a shield is very rare. In fact, having a ring attached to something other than a sword has only been found in one other dig outside of Sutton Hoo. And in this other dig, the ring was attached to a drinking horn. And it was found in, you guessed it, Sweden. But something to keep in mind with this shield is that, much like with everything else we've been talking about, while there are aspects that look very Swedish, it isn't a perfect parallel. The quality of the shield isn't seen in Vendel graves. So while it seems almost certain that this must have been created by a Swedish armorer, it is clearly a unique product of England. 
and unique to the world at that. Okay, so that covers the weapons and armor. But that's not the only thing that was found in the burial. What about the things found around where the body was probably laid? Given the placement of the objects that are going to be collectively referred to as regalia, it's reasonable to suspect that these objects were probably worn by the dead man. Maybe with the body raised up on a platform, before it probably dissolved in the acidic Suttonhu soil, leaving only the gold and garnet jewelry behind. But the dead man might have had a leather cuirass, fastened at the shoulder level by beautiful gold and garnet cloisonne boar's head clips. Which have a Roman origin and style, but, as you might have guessed, are completely unique, without any other parallel. And then lower down, we see a beautiful gold buckle that certainly was attached to a large leather belt. And even the buckle lacks a parallel and is exquisitely decorated with gold and garnet cloisonne. Now from that belt, the man might have hung an incredible purse with an intricate gold and garnet cloisonne lid. And the purse itself is significant, not just because of the intricacy of its lid, but also because it contains Merovingian coins that were minted between 575 and 625, which allows us to roughly approximate the earliest date of when this burial might have taken place. So that's the regalia. And if we look at the objects that lay close to his body, we find a variety of other interesting things. As you might remember, there is the Anastasius dish. This was a large silver dish with beautiful decorations at the center and a circle of decorations a short way out, featuring two running figures and also two seated figures, which have been theorized to represent Rome and Constantinople, the two capitals of the Roman Empire. Why Rome? And why call it the Anastasius dish? Well, because it has Emperor Anastasius's stamps upon them. Now, Anastasius ruled from 491 to 518, so long after Britannia was separated from the empire. Now, the quality of the dish is not of the highest type. I guess I'm being nice here. Essentially, it looks like it was a second-rate knockoff, much like the fluted silver bowl that it was found with. But still, here, we see links to Byzantium and to Rome. So that's kind of cool. Possibly less known, but no less important, are the ten bowls and two spoons that were found near where the dead man's shoulder probably was. These silver bowls are interesting because each one features a cross, which might have been of Christian significance, or maybe it's just a decoration. People have been using crosses for decoration long before Christianity. However, questions arise when you look at the two silver spoons, which have Greek letters carved into them that read Solace and Paulus. And that is almost certainly a Christian reference. Some have argued that the two spoons were intended to match, and that the S in Solace was a typo, and they were both supposed to read Paulus. However, those of you who went to Catholic school might recall that St. Paul was originally Saul before he took that fateful trip on the road to Damascus that led to a change in name, a change in religion, and a whole bunch of visions. Anyway, these spoons, and their proximity to where the body probably was, have been taken to support the argument that this might have been the burial for Raidwald, since he did briefly convert to Christianity, and he might have had objects like this in his possession. And then you have the heavy bronze Coptic bowl, which is also Eastern Mediterranean in origin. So we're getting the sense that this person was quite important and was also in power at a time when East Anglia had access to material from outside of Britain, and honestly, quite a long way away, even in the 7th century. 
but this was an Anglo-Saxon burial. So you know what's needed here, don't you? Booze. And place where the body's feet would have probably been are a couple decorated drinking horns and a set of silver gilt and maplewood bottles. The rims of the drinking horns are beautifully decorated with gilded silver foil with complex animal and human depictions. And the tips have a similar treatment, but this time with birds of prey. The maplewood bottles match the drinking horns in decoration, with their openings being decorated with silver panels featuring what look like horses, serpentine decorations, and human faces. But of course, this being Sutton Hoo, the style is, you guessed it, kind of Swedish. There are also eight little walnut burwood cups with silver gilt around the openings. And they are really small. It isn't clear what they're used for, but they must have cost quite a bit to have been made. And the temptation when looking at them is to say, these look like shot glasses. But there isn't any evidence for distilling yet at this point in history, so who knows what they are for. And it's not a night at the Anglo-Saxon pub without some games. And sure enough, the burial chamber also contains a gaming piece made out of sperm whale bone and little bits of copper. It's not clear what the game piece was for, but the Anglo-Saxons loved games, and it's nice to see that maybe the mourners didn't want the deceased to be bored in the afterlife. And speaking of boredom, there was also a lyre made, mostly, of maple wood, and it was probably kept in a beaver skin bag. And it would have been a six-stringed instrument, and reconstructions have shown that it would have sung quite brightly, and it could have been played any number of ways. That being said, we can't say for certain how it was played since we don't know what Anglo-Saxon music sounded like, what keys were used, or really anything about it. But you can imagine that it would have been right at home in the Mead Hall, accompanying a poem or a song about some heroic feat. And no one wants to play music in the dark. And thankfully, an iron lamp was provided, which still contains the beeswax that it would have used as fuel. Now, while this might seem like a minor matter while you're at the Sutton Hoo exhibit, especially when you see the weapons and armor, the reality is that this lamp is quite special. There's only one similar lamp in all of Anglo-Saxon archaeology, and that was found in a high-status grave in Broomfield, Essex. So once again, we're seeing something quite unique. And then we have the three bronze hanging bowls, and these are completely different in style from the other objects in the find. They're closely linked to the Celtic areas of Britain, and actually, the origin for the style goes all the way back to the pre-Roman Iron Age. So why are they there? What's their purpose? We're not sure. We can be pretty sure that they're prestige items, because bowls like these sometimes appear in high-status graves. But as for what they're used for, and what their story is, we just don't know. They're certainly beautiful, though, with gorgeous representations of animals in high tin bronze, which would have made the sections pop. And then you have the odd things that were added to the bowls, like the gold-backed garnet eyes on the boars, which is an English technique, and suggests that there might have been some amount of refurbishment that occurred. And when looking at these bowls, we do see a certain amount of repair work that looks like it occurred in an English workshop. So maybe whoever owned these bowls had a similar fascination with the past, like we do, and did what they could to restore these objects. Who knows? But it's fascinating stuff, isn't it? And then you have the more mundane objects that are still interesting, like the tubs, cauldrons, and buckets. 
It's not uncommon for Anglo-Saxon burials to include offerings of food. And there is a possibility that some of the food was left in the Anastasius dish, and that some sort of liquid was left in a pottery bottle. But as for the tubs, cauldrons, and buckets, we don't see any evidence of food offerings. But there were quite a few of these containers. And Cauldron 1 is quite an impressive display of bronze working, and it even included a stunning iron suspension chain with impressive decorations. So what were these cauldrons for? Well, the mystery is part of what makes archaeology so interesting. And not everything in the burial was so functional. Some of it was clearly symbolic in nature, denoting the power of the deceased. On the west wall was the Sutton Hoo Scepter, which isn't really what you think of when you think of scepters. It was basically a huge whetstone decorated with eight faces carved into the top and bottom, which some have theorized were portraits of the members of the Wuffingas, the ruling dynasty of East Anglia. And on its top is a delicate bronze stag on a ring of twisted iron wires. Basically, it's the sort of thing that you'd imagine Robert Baratheon would have made. Honestly, it's kind of hard to describe, and you probably should see it in person, or at least pull up a photograph of it online. And like everything else, this is unique. There are examples of whetstones that have single carved faces on them, but not eight. And historians have argued that this might have had some sort of totemic significance. But in the end, we may never know. And let's end this episode with another mystery object. The Iron Stand. We really don't know what its purpose was. But its scale and craftsmanship certainly catches the imagination. And archaeologists believe that given its close proximity to the scepter, that it must have been some sort of symbol of power. And the reality is that standards, banners, and the like were not unknown at this time. Edwin will later use them himself. So could the royal banner of East Anglia once hung from this stand? With its bottom driven into the ground or maybe into a block of wood? It's possible. But it's one of those questions that we haven't yet managed to answer. But the fact remains that this burial wasn't just a sterile event. Burials are very human. And when we look at these objects in this mound, we aren't just seeing items that may have related to the deceased. But also, we're seeing objects that might have had a great deal of meaning to those who were carrying out the burial. It's easy to look at all these objects and just think that this was the kit of the person who was buried there. But this was a community event, and it required a tremendous amount of collective effort to accomplish. And the goods being placed in there came from far and wide. This was not a minor event. We are not only seeing who this person might have been, but we're also seeing how the community expressed their grief, and also what they might have hoped for the afterlife. This burial, while it is cryptic and contains many finds that raise more questions than they answer, is still a very human expression of mourning. And what we're seeing at the exhibit at the British Museum are the remains of that collective experience. So hopefully this has given you a more thorough understanding of the importance of the finds at Sutton Hoo, and has made you want to head over to the British Museum and see them in person. Because they really are worth seeing, especially now you know the story of their finding, with Edith, Basil, and Charles exploring the unknown inch by inch. And you also know the story of King Raidwald of East Anglia. And you know how unique just about everything in this burial was. And I think that will only further enrich your experience. Finally, this episode was done in a single piece, so you can take it along with you to the museum should you ever have the chance. 
It's not often that I tell you stories about things you can walk right up to and look at after all. So I hope that sometime soon you'll have the opportunity to head over there and bring the BHP with you. Okay, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash britishhistory. And we're on Twitter. Just go to at britishpodcast. And we're on Tumblr. And that's britishpodcast.tumblr.com. And, of course, there are the forums. Just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com, click Get Involved, and click Forums, and we'll see you over there. All right, thanks for listening. Okay, it's time for another British History Pub Quiz. You know the drill. Question 1. Who directed the construction of the original St. Paul's in London? Question 2. Plunkett believes that Raidwald of East Anglia converted back to paganism due to whose influence? Question 3. Edwin of Deira went and took shelter in a Welsh kingdom. Name that kingdom. Question 4. Aidbald, son of King Aethelbert of Kent, was a practicing pagan, and, upon taking the throne, did something that really bothered the church. What did he do? Question 5. King Sabert of Essex had three pagan sons, and they took over following the death of Aethelbert and Sabert. What did they do upon taking power? Question 6. People were scandalized by the prevalence of long hair in the court of William Rufus. But what else were they bothered by? Question 7. Edwin was a member of a dynasty from what kingdom? Question 8. Hereric, nephew of Edwin, died in the court of Cheritich, who was the king of what kingdom? Question 9. Acha was connected to both Aethelfrith and Edwin. For one point each, what was her relationship to them? Question 10. What did the Queen of East Anglia do when she found out her husband was about to accept a bribe from Aethelfrith? Question 11. At the Battle of the River Idol, King Aethelfrith of Northumbria faced off with the Army of the South, which was under the command of three nobles. For one point each, name the nobles. Question 12. Two major figures died at the Battle of the River Idol. For one point each, name them. Question 13. What 16th century figure might have been responsible for the initial dig at Mound 1 of Sutton Hoo? Question 14. Basil Brown had what relationship to Sutton Hoo? Question 15. What woodland creatures had created havoc at Sutton Hoo? Question 16. What notable thing was missing at Mound 1 at Sutton Hoo? Question 17. How long would an open-air cremation have taken? Question 19. Who is commonly believed to have been buried at Mound 1 of Sutton Hoo? Question 19. Following the inquest, who owned the treasures of Sutton Hoo? 
And the last question, question 20. Winston Churchill wanted to give the Order of the British Empire to the owner of Sutton Hoo. Why? Okay, and let's cover the answers now. Question 1. Who directed the construction of the original St. Paul's in London? That would be King Ethelbert of Kent. Question 2. Plunkett believes that Raidwald of East Anglia converted back to paganism due to whose influence? He believed that was under the influence of Raidwald's queen, the Princess of Essex. Question 3. Edwin of Deira went and took shelter in a Welsh kingdom. Name that kingdom. That was the kingdom of Gwyneth. Question 4. Aidbald, son of King Ethelbert of Kent, did something that really bothered the church. What did he do? He married his stepmother. Question 5. King Sabert of Essex had three pagan sons, and they took over following the death of Ethelbert and Sabert. What did they do upon taking power? They expelled the Christian missionaries from their kingdom. Question 6. People were scandalized by the prevalence of long hair in the court of William Rufus. But what else were they bothered by? They were bothered by men wearing pointy shoes. Question 7. Edwin was a member of a dynasty from what kingdom? Deira. Question 8. Hereric, nephew of Edwin, died in the court of Cheritich, who was the king of what kingdom? He was the king of the Elmet. Question 9. Acha was connected to both Aethelfrith and Edwin. For one point each, what was her relationship to them? Point number one, she had a child with Aethelfrith. And point number two, she was the sister of Edwin. Question 10. What did the Queen of East Anglia do when she found out her husband was about to accept a bribe from Aethelfrith? She voiced her displeasure that she married someone who was so eager to abandon his honor and violate guest rights over a bribe. So basically, she balked heavily. Question 11. At the Battle of the River Idol, King Aethelfrith of Northumbria faced off with the Army of the South, which was under the command of three nobles. For one point each, name the nobles. They were Edwin of Deira, Raidwald of East Anglia, and Regan Hera of East Anglia. Question 12. Two major figures died at the Battle of the River Idol. For one point each, name them. They were Regan Hera of East Anglia and King Aethelfrith of Northumbria. Question 13. What 16th century figure might have been responsible for the initial dig at Mound 1 of Sutton Hoo? It might have been Dr. John Dee, who was Queen Elizabeth's alchemist and astrologer. Question 14. Basil Brown had what relationship to Sutton Hoo? He was the first archaeologist to dig there. Question 15. What woodland creatures had created havoc at Sutton Hoo? That would be the rabbits. Question 16. What notable thing was missing at Mound 1 at Sutton Hoo? A body. Question 17. How long would an open-air cremation have taken? It would have taken about 10 hours. Question 19. Who is commonly believed to have been buried at Mound 1 of Sutton Hoo? Raidwald of East Anglia. Question 19. Following the inquest, who owned the treasures of Sutton Hoo? That would be Edith Pretty. 
And the last question, question 20. Winston Churchill wanted to give the Order of the British Empire to the owner of Sutton Hoo. Why? Well, because Edith Pretty handed over all of it to the British Museum, which was pretty incredible that she did that. Good for Edith. Okay, I hope you did well and I hope you had fun. And I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.